Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I have a special episode today with two guests who have both taken their inspiration from Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. First, there's Anne Ma, whose memoir is called Mastering the Art of French Eating. And then there's Anya von Bremsen, and her book is called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. And we're going to be getting into each of those two tales over the course of this conversation. But welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Great to be here. So I'm going to start with Anne. Mastering the Art of French Eating starts out as a story about you being posted, well, your husband is posted to France. And let's tell us a little bit about how you got to France and, and set up there. Well, my husband is a diplomat, a foreign service officer, and so we move around. Uh, we move every three or four years uh, based on his work. Uh, we've lived in China. We've lived in Washington, D.C., and in 2008, we were very, very lucky to be posted to France. It was our dream assignment. Uh, we're both Francophiles. He has also lived in the former Soviet Union, and he speaks Russian, so he's also a Russophile. But it was really our dream to live in Paris for three years, and we were very, very, we were delighted. We were ecstatic. A few months after we arrived, he got called to Baghdad on an unaccompanied assignment for a year. I was not able to come. It was no family, no spouses. Uh, and I had the wonderful opportunity to, to stay in Paris, which was always my dream to live there. Of course, without him, my dream of living there changed a little bit. But with his encouragement, I used that time to explore the country on my own and to really discover French cuisine, French country cuisine, French regional cuisine. So you're basically there, as you say, on your own. And rather than just stay cooped up in your apartment or in Paris all the time, you're like, I'm in France. I'm going to go see these things. I'm going to take advantage of being here. I traveled to 10 different regions of France and discovered the signature dish of each region. And the book really tells the biography of each of these dishes. And what was the first place that you went to? Well, the book opens in Paris, and the dish I chose for Paris is steak frites because I wanted to tell the story of the cafes and bistros in Paris. It's a story that begins in the Aveyron, which is a region in south-central France, and it's a, a story of immigrants, of people who came to, to the big city, to the capital from this very poor region in the 19th century to really found the cafe culture that we know today. One of the things that I was interested in as I was reading the story is that it doesn't really come up until much later in the narrative, but you were doing essentially a, a private food blog mm -hmm. all along. Mm -hmm. And what was the point at which you sort of decided that to take this private blog that was mostly just for you and a few friends and turn it into a book? Well, as I say, as I joke in the book, no one read my blog and hardly anyone reads my blog now. And if a blog is only read by, you know, your husband and your dad sometimes, does it even exist? Was sort of the joke I had. But the book, the research grew from my passion for, for food and for traveling around and, and discovering the connection between place and history and the recipe that grows from a, from a, from the land and takes root and is cooked there for hundreds of years. I wanted to tell that story in a greater detail than what I could cover in the blog. And we're going to delve into some of the things that you've discovered in a little bit, but I want to turn to Anya and talk a little bit about how you were born in the Soviet Union and you and your mother came here when you were young. And mastering the art of Soviet cooking is 
it's not strictly speaking nostalgic, I would say, although nostalgia plays a, a role in it, but it's a look back at what Soviet cuisine was said to be and and sometimes was over the course of the history of the Soviet Union. Well, the title, of course, is deeply ironic. It's like not at all a cookbook, and it's not even that much a book about cuisine as it is a book about survival. What I wanted to do is to tell this kind of epic history of 20th century Russia through food, because food, again, has a very existential and, again, epic place in, in Soviet history. After the revolution, you know, the Soviet Union started with rationing, and in 1991, as the Soviet Union collapsed, it ended with rationing again, and in between, you know, there was Stalinism, World War II, more rationing, you know, millions died from starvation, and at the same time, food was the object of absolute sort of longing and desire, and the subtitle of the book is The Memoir of Food and Longing, and, you know, longing is kind of the central, central motif of the book. That said, you know, the, that said there was an effort by Stalin's food commissar in the 1930s to create this thing called Soviet cuisine. And it was, you know, partly party planning, you know, partly after that spontaneous evolution, you know, but the idea, again, for the book, and it, it was slightly inspired immodestly by War and Peace, by Tolstoy's War and Peace, was to tell the epic history of a country through food and through family history. So it's a hybrid of family memoir, social history, and the framework of cooking. As part of the project of shaping the Soviet identity in the 30s by identifying a, you know, or, or naming a Soviet cuisine, part of what comes out of that is a very famous um, Soviet cookbook that comes up a number of times in your story um, from which you and your mom draw inspiration for some of the recipes that you served over the course of the project. Well, the book is called The Book of uh, Tasty and Healthy Food. And it was published <laughs> in 1931 by Stalin's food commissariat. And the guy, you know, the, the inspiration and the engine was this guy, Anastas Mikayan, who is this Armenian-born old Bolshevik, and who would become the longest, the, the greatest survivor of Soviet political history. He lasted from Vladimir Ilyich, Lenin, to... Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev. So they call him from Ilyich to Ilyich, from Brezhnev, from, from Lenin to Brezhnev. And he was really genuinely interested in food. As the country was recovering from the first drive, you know, of industrialization, the first five-year plan, the horrible, horrible famines that resulted from collectivization that ended in 1932, he actually set off to modernize the Soviet food industry. And a lot of what he learned, he learned from his trip across America in 1936. In 1939, the state publishes this cookbook. But this being Stalinist Russia, it's also a political document. And it's also kind of a blueprint to the road to the socialist utopia. So it's still like this very hungry year. You have this big tome with this lavish illustrations and photos of this unattainable food for people kind of to look at and to see what the radiant future is going to look like if we all work hard and build socialism. It has a tons of quotations from Stalin. Stalin is kind of... Mikoyan, this commissar, is like Stalin's evangelist. And Stalin is, you know, the father, you know, godfather to Soviet cuisine. It's got all this glorification of Soviet production plants. So it's kind of a secular Bible. But there was nothing like it before in Soviet times. So, you know, even my mom, 
you know, when she was five or so, she just remembers being absolutely mesmerized by these photographs. And the book went through many different editions. <laughs> and good. each edition, yes, reflected the political winds. For instance, you know, the first edition, when Soviet Union was still kind of internationalist, it has American recipes, it mentions ketchup, actually it has ads for ketchup. There's this great thing. So, oh, look, and this wonder condiment that every American wife has in her cupboard. Ketchup, cornflakes, Jewish recipes, you know, recipes from various Soviet minorities. Then the minorities get arrested. There's this huge wave of anti-Semitism. America, after the war, becomes, you know, this imperialist enemy, number one, which used to be Britain, now it's America. So all these recipes get deleted, and the mentions of all, all, all the stuff gets deleted. And then Stalin dies, Stalin gets deleted when Khrushchev denounces him. So it goes on and on. And for instance, the edition that I love under Khrushchev, it reflects, you know, Khrushchev's own kind of propaganda of streamlined design. Like Khrushchev wanted to purge Stalinist ornamentalism. So it becomes this kind of very streamlined thing. So it's, it's, very, it's very curious to see, you know, how Soviet politics evolved and how this kind of domestic cooking Bible reflected that. It's an interesting parallel between that kind of top-down totalitarian attempt to very rigidly define like you know what our national identity is via food versus what I felt like you were encountering Anne a lot in your trips to the regions of France is that the various regions are very fiercely proud of their culinary accomplishments or, or culinary touchstones and those dishes they are part of what defines each of, each of those re regions as well as defining French cuisine. Definitely. There's a saying in France, people always say, you know, I'm proud to be from my region and then I'm proud to be French. And people, I think people think there's a stereotype of French people as being cold and formal and unwelcoming. I think that stereotype mostly applies to Parisians, even in, even in France, rural France or, you know, outside of Paris, people complain about how mean Parisians are. But people, when you express some interest in their in their regional cuisine or travel to their hometown, to their village, and tell them, I want to learn more, I experienced a wonderful generosity and eagerness to share that touched me, really. It was very moving. And there were a couple of dishes that, some of them you were very eager to try, and some of them you were not so eager to try. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, probably the most divisive dish in the book is Andriette, which is a tripe sausage. Um, there are many different kinds in, in France. The one I researched was from Troyes, which is a town in the Champagne region of France. And I visited a charcutier and a factory that makes Andriette and learned a lot about, you know, how it's made, how the tripe is cut, how it's seasoned and stuffed into the guts of the intestine and how it's uh, simmered gently for hours at a time so that it becomes a very compact sausage. The smell of tripe, which is sort of like one of Paris's narrow dog-friendly sidewalks, lingers. And it did seem a little counterintuitive to me to put something that smelled like that into my mouth. But I did try it, and really the, the flavor was quite inoffensive. It reminded me a lot of bologna. It was the texture that was more difficult for me to embrace, um, sort of a very chewy, cartilaginous, endlessly chewy, like a stretched out rubber band. It's just enhanced to the very being of its own tripeness. And Anya, you talk about how when you were young and growing up in Moscow with the food shortages, and then you come to America 
And as complex as your relationship, I guess, with the Soviet food of your youth was, you actually sort of did find yourself nostalgic for it when you first arrived in America and found American cuisine somewhat bland by comparison. Well, it's an issue that I refer to again and again as a poisoned Madeleine, you know, kind of departing from Proust. And what has almost become a cliche, you know, that the invocation of childhood through food are kind of idyllic. And I said, well, if they're not, what if they're not idyllic? What if, you know, the food invokes a repressive regime or, you know, a nostalgia for a country that nurtured you, but it's a very complicated culture with, you know, with a complicated history. So it's a mixture of kind of attraction, revulsion, shame, almost for missing it. But yes, when we came, you know, I was, I was like a typical child of the 70s. In the Soviet Union, I was completely obsessed with the West. I black marketeered juicy fruit gum at school. And, you know, occasionally you get this, like, tokens of Western, <laughs> Western freedoms, you know, like M&Ms or Mars bars or whatever, you know. I mean, I've, I haven't seen many. So I, I, I had this idea that America would be just this land of incredible foods, you know, where bananas would be growing from trees and you can have all the gum and all the coke you want. And then we came and I remember going to a diner for the first time and they served these burgers that were covered with melted Velveeta. And I stared at just absolute sort of primal culture shock at this orange thing. Because I've, I've never seen anything that orange, let alone food, you know, which is like we didn't have that color in Russia, the kind of day glow, you know, synthetic color. And, you know, all this like all-you-can-drink Coke in this like huge plastic cups. And I mean, I remember the squeak of styrofoam. Everything America, about American food just totally scared me, you know, in, in this just deep, deep level. Because Russian cuisine is kind of savory and salty. And everything American was so sweet, like the coleslaw was sweet, and even, you know, relish on hot dogs was sweet. And yes, I started missing, suddenly I started missing the cuisine, the, the food that we left behind in Moscow, especially the, the sourdough rye at the bakeries and the smell of it, and, you know, the juice fountains, the kind of conical... But yet, you know, this, this nostalgia was very fraught, because I knew there was a regime that my mom reviled and she fled how could i miss it in a sincere way so i went through the you know there wasn't even a name for the country because you couldn't miss the ussr because it was official soviet union was official you know i could miss moscow but like even the name of the country was so politically kind of loaded it was it was very complex and then closer to the present day what inspired you to start the particular project of preparing dinners with the dishes of each decade of the Soviet Union's history, because those dinners, in a way, really sort of form the spine of your narrative. Well, I was living, before I embarked on this project, I was leading a very different kind of life. I'm a contributing editor at Travel and Leisure magazine. I write about restaurants. I wrote five international cookbooks. You know, my job was, you know, I got paid to travel around the world and write about wonderful, wonderful foods. You know, I, I would be at El Bui, or at Noma, or somewhere, you know, having some kind of awesome degustation menu. All my professional life, I kind of kept flashing back to that much more stark, much more existential reality related to food of my childhood, you know, the kind of pathos and drama of scarcity, or of kind of really cherishing something, you know, like we had a banana once a year. Uh, I've never, like, 
I had no idea what avocado or asparagus looked like. So here I was having this career and something was just bottling up inside me, you know, some this this other parallel kind of reality. And finally I decided that it was time to, you know, address that history and that childhood. Maybe it's like a Soviet or, you know, Russian attitude, but I didn't want to write just a personal kind of hedonistic memoir. Because, you know, for a Soviet person, memoir was something you smuggled out of a gulag. It was something, you know, for which you could get arrested. There was something heroic about the whole genre from that early Soviet day. So I decided that it should be a history of the Soviet Union as much as a personal history and a food memoir. And uh, But I had no idea how to structure. I mean, this is a huge, you know, it's a whole century, you know, full of dramas and wars and human suffering and also triumphs. And it was my mom who suggested she said, why don't you structure the book as a metaphoric meal that spans 10 decades of the Soviet and post-Soviet experience? And my mom is kind of a culinary archivist. She works at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and she loves cooking historic meals. She can do ancient Egypt. She can do, you know, ancient Greece. Uh, she's really obsessed with it. So the idea to recreate, to kind of do a feast or, you know, an anti-feast, World War II, for instance, for each decade of the Soviet experience, you know, that came from her. And so we would gather people together, you know, her generation, she's 79, who still remember Soviet history and, you know, younger people. And, you know, so around the, the feasts, you know, the meals are kind of the framework, you know, the framing device. And then spin off onto the, you know, the family memoir about my parents and grandparents and Soviet history. And as you write about, your mom really took to the cooking aspects of this. The, you know, those are some of the uh, the funniest passages in a, in a book that doesn't necessarily have a lot of humor in it because of the history that it deals with. Your mom's exuberance about preparing some of these dishes is a very welcome respite. Well, I think the book is actually filled with humor because, you know, our mm -hmm. attitude is very kind of sardonic and sarcastic. I mean, I would say it's dark humor, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is, you know... It's very funny, especially the later chapters. I mean, obviously the history is not funny, but it's a very kind of Russian, you know, dark human is a very Russian thing. And yeah, my mom completely embraced this project. For instance, you know, we were cooking uh, a meal for the 50s and we decided to hold a Stalin's death day gathering. And Stalin's funeral in 1953 was this huge affair Again, tragedy. A lot of people got trampled to death, but everyone wanted to go. It was just like this absolute kind of, you know, sea change in, in the consciousness. Um, so my mom really agonized about what she could prepare. She wanted to represent, you know, the official Stalinist pomposity with a certain dish. She wanted to make like a dissident dish to represent that. So she, you know, she had this very ambitious thing. And then she said, oh, let's make this lamb stew with eggplants to represent the ethnic minorities, you know, Georgian cuisine, which was very popular. And I said, Mom, do you know that this was Stalin's favorite dish? She <laughs> said, oh, no, I already bought all the eggplants and lamb. I said, Mom, you can't celebrate Stalin's death day with his favorite dish. <laughs> so this is whole kind of, so, you know, in the book, you know, I go back to my, you know, research, I, you know, and then there's a whole passage about Stalin that's feasts that Stalin held as his dacha. And yes, indeed, it was his favorite dish, you know, and the recipe is there. So then my mom, you know, she, she already cooked it. And she says, okay, why don't we make it as a tribute to the oppressed Georgians? Because at the same time, Stalin was very kind of paranoid in his later years. He was plotting some kind of genocidal purge against Georgians, and specifically against, you know, a Georgian minority of which uh, Beria, 
you know, his executioner and the chief of NKVD that was part. So that was, that was very funny. So, you know, a lot of it is ironic because you're dealing with this kind of pompous propaganda and the only attitude you can take towards it is, is dark humor. And my mom was very game. And Anya mentioned being a traveling and food writer. And I know that in several of the places where your husband was posted, you ended up writing freelance mm -hmm. as well, based more in the places where you were living but that, that you had this background as well. Yes. A month after we got married, I quit my job uh, as a book editor, and we moved to Beijing, China, which was a great... It was about five years before the Olympics, and so the city was just teeming with this energy. I missed working. as I missed my job and my career very, very much, and it was a big transition to suddenly find myself as a diplomat's wife, a trailing spouse, like Julia Child... I was really searching for something to give more meaning to my life, a meaningful career, but something that I could transport around the world with me, which was very challenging. I was very, very lucky to be able to start writing in Beijing, and the, the city itself really was, was the opportunity that I had. And then when you got to Paris, it also turned out that, well, there are a lot of American expatriates who are trying to write or, or be a freelance writers mm -hmm. in France. So, they, I mean, you eventually did find your way into that, but it took a lot of doing it. Absolutely. I mean, I, writing about food and travel is everyone's dream, as I'm sure Anya can testify. And doing it is not easy. There are a lot of people in Paris who are aspiring writers or who are accomplished writers. They weren't always that welcoming to someone who you know, was new in town, new in France, and hadn't spoken French I hadn't spoken French my entire life, but I am a, I can be very determined when I want to be. <laughs> so the memoir does offer opportunities for you to look back at your own family past. One of the things that I was really interested by was your mom's complicated relationship with France, which in some ways you end up thinking about, well, whether or not her relationship with France ends up subconsciously affecting your own relationship with France growing up. Absolutely. Uh, my mother had a very painful childhood. She, Her mother died giving birth to her. Her father remarried a woman who was half French and half Chinese, who hated all her stepchildren. And this was in pre-war China in Shanghai. And so her story really spans Shanghai before the war, and then they fled to Hong Kong after the communists came. And this painful historical backdrop, but as well the loss of her own mother, who she never knew, and the very traumatic relationship she had with this stepmother whose name um, was Nyang, or she called her Nyang. She sent my mother to a French kindergarten, and my mother grew up speaking French a little bit. She gave my mother a French name, Adeline, and I think really colored the way my mom thinks about France. My mother always discouraged my budding francophilia. I wanted to study French in high school, and she suggested Spanish. She thought that French was a useless language, that no one speaks it. You know, that very few countries actually do speak French compared to Spanish. Um, she was very, very eager for me to study Chinese, which I did as well. But there was always this sense of forbidden fruit. Then as you got older, your parents did take you there, and that you would go yourself or with your husband much later. And it was when you started going with your husband that 
it really sort of clicked into place for you. My parents did take me to France twice as a child, and I loved both times. The second time we went to Provence in the south, and I that remember these formative food experiences of eating these tiny little birds called ortonons, which were captured by one of my father's friends who lived outside of Marseille. And it was a tradition of hunting and trapping and gathering little winged ants to bait the traps with and catching these little birds and then roasting them, and then they'd serve them to us whole. And that was just so vivid to me, the whole experience. Even as a 12-year-old, I recognized this connection and the pride that he was offering these kind of disgusting little birds to us. Even, you know, as a kid, I had such tremendous respect for everything that the dish represented for him. And then when I, as an adult, visited Paris with my husband, it was like falling in love with a city that was so beautiful and seemed to have this culture that I wanted to experience so deeply. And, and Anya, after you and your mother moved to the United States, she saved up her money from working and within a few years after you moved to the States, you were able to take a trip to Paris as well. And there's a really wonderful scene that you write about where you found a restaurant in Paris that served what you thought was going to be an equivalent of a Russian dish that had held this kind of idyllic memory. Well, again, the whole kind of Paris part is about longing, 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 because especially for my mom's generation, culture like, replaced everything in her life, it replaced, you know, after Stalin's death, replaced ideology, whatever. And, you know, she, she was, you know, a passionate Proustian. She read Balzac, you know, she, it was kind of, and she felt like it was part of her culture as well, but she was denied because she could never see Paris. One, actually, the book starts in the prologue with this really poignant dream that she had all her life, that she turns into a bird or a bee, and she flies across the Soviet border, and no one asks her for her passport. And suddenly she's in Paris, the Paris that she recognizes from the art, from Utrillo paintings, from, you know, she's like, it was so painfully familiar to her, and yet completely inaccessible. And she's like flying over at this cafe, and she's dying to go inside. She almost can smell the smells. And then she always wakes up, always on the wrong side of the border. And she would just wake up and weep that she was denied access. And so, yeah, as soon as we could travel, because we came to America as stateless refugees, so it took us a while to get our travel documents together, she saved up all her money to go to Paris. And she was just ecstatic. Imagine the city that she dreamt of all her life. I was like, blah, you know, Paris was, was a big deal. I mean, I, I kind of didn't warm to it at all. Then there was, you know, another kind of object of longing was this uh, traditional Russian pie called Kulibyaka. In its real version, it's this like complicated, tiered, layered, almost Baroque pie of fish, rice, mushrooms, which the French adapted as Kulibyak. It's actually becoming very fashionable. Bill Buford just wrote about it in The New Yorker, and Daniel Ballou is talking about it. We found it, and we would die to taste, you know, the non-Soviet version of it. And we found it with this kind of overpriced old Russian emigre restaurant, you know, still with gypsy music. And we were, like, completely broke, fingering our francs. And then the pie came, and it was just salmon and puff pastry. I remember this crushing disappointment 
thinking, oh man, this is, this is, this is like no big deal. When you fantasize and dream about something too much, almost no reality can match the fantasies. And at some point in the book, I say dreaming about food can be a lot more rewarding than actually eating. At least for me, my mom, my mom is completely different. I mean, she found everything she wanted in Paris. It's still a city of her dreams. And, you know, she actually loved American food. I think, you know, maybe I was a melancholy child. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of finding the dishes that you not only dream about, but then you find and then turn out to be as much as you had hoped for. What, in the course of preparing these two books, do you think was would be like the one dish that best hit that standard for each of you? The standard of... Of like, oh my God, this is so wonderful. Well, I think like Anya is saying, it's maybe not so much about the food, but the experience of eating the food or the experience that surrounds the actual food that you're putting in your mouth. For me, that would be cooking this vegetable soup au pistou in Provence with a group of older women um, for 200 people for a village festival. It was a slightly terrifying experience because they were quite formidable, a little bit gossipy, and very suspicious of an American who looked Chinese, who spoke French and lived in Paris. But at the end of the day, I managed to wear them down by not comparing their Provencal food too much with Italian cuisine <laughs> and joining everyone in the, in the village square to eat this soup and, and hearing the rave reviews from, for the, the, the head chef's recipe. The head chef was this very lovely woman named Maurissette whose husband had died a couple years earlier and she really cooked this soup sort of in homage to him. I think for us it was that kulibiaka, because over years we developed a recipe, and kulibiaka, that, that fish pie, is kind of lavishly, almost orgiastically described by all the Russian 19th century writers. You know, Nikolai Gogol, in his Dead Souls, gives almost like a recipe. Chekhov, Anton Chekhov, has a short story that starts with it, so it's just this kind of platonic ideal of Russian literature. We decided we really want to kind of recreate the original version, the 19th century version, that was also very popular in Moscow. My first chapter starts with that dish. It was very popular in Moscow at the taverns, the like 1910s. Grand Dukes from St. Petersburg would take the train to Moscow just to eat it at certain taverns. And it was very tall. It had all these layers. So we set off, okay, we're going to recreate it. And the strange thing that it, the layers are supposed to be layered with blini. So you put like a layer of fish, a layer of blini, like yeast. And not, not just small little blinis, but, you know, proper yeast kind of fluffy blini. Then a layer of mushrooms. Then a layer of rice. Then a layer of blini. And I'm like... Why would you stuff dough with more dough? It just made no sense the, the way the original recipe was. And we labored over it. It was really, really hot. It was like the hottest summers uh, in recent memories. We've invited all these guests for this 19th century farewell to the Tsar's dinner. The kulibyaka just, it, it turned out unbelievably. I understood why you had to put blini inside the dough because it kind of absorbs all the flavors. It was something like collapsing into the most decadent feather bed. It was it was just really, really an incredible, incredible dish. And the whole meal was an incredible experience because we recreated some very old-fashioned soup, also with vegetables and, and, and fish. And it was very funny, you know, I labored over this whole heat wave. And then it turned out perfect. And then in terms of the narrative in the story, then this whole thing comes crashing down, because crashing down because the revolution ha happens. 1917 revolution and all the food disappears and what are each of you 
writing about these days? You know, I've gone back to, to magazine work. I have a piece coming out on Vienna, Viennese food during Christmas that's coming out in December, Travel and Leisure. I'm doing a big story in Istanbul where I have a part-time home and more travels, more restaurants. And I know that you, Anne, are spending your time between Paris and New York City? That's right. We have a shoebox in Paris. I have been working on a novel about a female sommelier. The research is an excuse to drink a lot of wine, I suppose. I hope to travel in France more this coming summer and do a, participate in a great harvest and do more research for that book. I have been talking with Anne Ma about mastering the art of French eating and Anya von Bremsen about mastering the art of Soviet cooking. You have been listening to Life Stories, and if you aren't currently subscribed to it through iTunes, you can subscribe to it through iTunes. And if you are, I hope that you'll take a moment perhaps to review it and rate it, and that will help other people find it as well. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope to join you for another episode soon. Take care.